Do you miss ketchup on your low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Alterna Sweets, alternasweets.com, the healthy option for ketchup. It's sweetened with stevia and has the highest quality non-GMO ingredients. There are no artificial ingredients at all. In fact, there's no added sugar of any kind and keto ketchup that actually tastes like real ketchup. Guys, I have been using this and it is now my favorite condiment in my kitchen. Alterna Sweets offers free shipping on all U.S. orders and there is a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't love it as much as Jimmy Moore does, they will refund your money and you don't even have to send it back. Again, it's called Alterna Sweets. Head on over to alternasweets.com and you can get your hands on this keto ketchup. Alterna Sweets, the information and opinion provided here are for educational purposes only and are not intended to provide individual medical advice. Material conversations and statements found herein are not intended as and does not substitute for a personalized doctor-patient relationship. It's time for Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Featuring veteran health podcaster Jimmy Moore and functional medicine practitioner Dr. Will Cole. They're here every Thursday answering your questions about low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diets. Now, it's time to drop some keto knowledge on Keto Talk. Keto Talk. Here's Jimmy and Will. Hey, hey, guys. We're back here on episode 141 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Visit our website. It's ketotalk.com. And what do we do here? We talk about ketogenic diets because, oh, yeah, it's the hottest thing out there in nutritional health these days. And we answer your questions all about low carb, moderate protein, high fat diets. My name is Jimmy Moore, international bestselling author of Keto Clarity and the brand new book, Real Food Keto. And usually I am accompanied by my co-host, Dr. Will Cole, functional medicine practitioner, but he is out again. He He's so busy now, you guys, with the success of his book, Ketotarian, that he had to be a slacker again this week. But that's OK. Jimmy Moore's got a lot of people in his Rolodex. And I have a special guest co-host for you guys today that I think you're going to like. His name, Dr. Jay Wiles. And he is a very interesting figure in this space because he's a nutritional psychologist, which... Many people may not know what that is, Jay, but I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing and was really uh, privileged to be able to interview you recently for the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Uh, what episode number? Let's see how good you are. Oh, man. 14 something? <laughs> Four, it was 1400 something? 1400 no, something. You're exactly right. It's 1400 something. So. <laughs> but a couple <laughs> of weeks it up, ago. You'll find, just type it into Google, 1400 something LLVLC. You'll find me there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or go to LLVLC.com and just type in W-I-L-E-S. You'll definitely find it that way. But DrJWiles.com is your website. You're just down the road from me in Greenville, South Carolina. So we talked like this today, you guys, you know why. But uh, Jay, um, you know, you, you've been doing some really cool stuff out there with your patients and and what you're doing in your work. And so I asked you, I'm like, what? What, what would you like to talk about kind of to kick off the show that maybe people that don't know who you are um, can relate with you? And you're like, hey, I want to talk about how keto actually plays an integral role, uh, not just in brain health, but also how your brain operates and the performance and basically your overall well-being. And a lot of people that are longtime eaters of this way, they can attest to probably all of those things and more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Jimmy, thanks for having me on. I mean, it's been a pleasure to to be on these shows with you and to discuss something that's really important to me as a passion area for me. And it's not just from a clinical standpoint, something that I practice with patients, but this is also something that's quite important to me on a personal level. And you're right. I wanted to talk about brain health. I wanted to talk about how ketogenic diets or a ketogenic lifestyle plays an integral role um, in in our overall brain health and cognitive well-being. And as you know, Jimmy, I could really speak to this for days, um, but, you know, let me speak to it at its most basic levels. You know, today you're probably going to likely hear me discuss the word inflammation over and over and over again. And you know what? I'm okay with that. It's a theme song on this show. As a, as a fan of the show, which he is, you guys, you hear me and Will talk about inflammation pretty much all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. And because I hear that all the time, I'm like, well, it's not going to hurt for me to come on and talk about it a little bit further. <laughs> well, yeah, and we know that that's because inflammation is truly a primary root cause for cognitive dysfunction and even mood dysregulation. And at the core, when we live a lifestyle that is bound in being overfed with poor food and, you know, truly being undernourished due to years and years of overindulgence and, as you like to say, Jimmy, crappy garbage, then we pay for it from a neurological yeah. standpoint. And then you couple this with living a sedentary lifestyle, living in an environment full of toxins, enhanced and sustained chronic stress, and, you know, other poor lifestyle areas. And you're just a ticking Tom bomb. And this is where a ketogenic lifestyle and not just keto alone, as you know, I'm a huge proponent of many other lifestyle modifications. But for a ketogenic lifestyle, it can be a place where we can find true healing at the intracellular level, the hormonal level, the relational and social level, and really much, much more. And we're over consuming on much more than just a food level as well. I think about like all the electronics. I'm literally looking at one computer and then another computer to record. I'm looking at a microphone and headphone. I mean, we have computers and electronic gizmos all over the place. And that can't come without some kind of consequences to brain health as well. No, you you're very right. I mean, it's one of the things that is kind of on the the forefront of my radar because I'm typically one of those individuals who I'm sensitive to EMF, um, which are uh, you know, electromagnetic fields. So things that are being put off by our technology that we are inundated with. And so I know with a you know a person like you, Jimmy, I mean, this is what you do for a living. I mean, you're yeah. in front of all this technology. And so, yeah, we have to acknowledge that there's there's other things that, that can wreak havoc on our biology that are not nutritionally based, though we do find that nutrition is a key player in the game. We can't deny that as well. So how do you know you're sensitive to EMF? Have you had some kind of testing done and how does that manifest itself if you do get exposed? Yeah, absolutely. There's been no testing that I've had done. There are ways to test it. Um, the Basically, from a biohacking standpoint, a lot of people buy what's called tri-field meters, uh, which are able to detect EMF radiation um, yep. kind of within your within your setting. And so there are actually um, biologists um, who are building biologists who this is what they do for a living is they go and they test this in certain areas of your home and your workplace or wherever it may be. I have not been able to have the opportunity to do that yet, but I would love to do it. It's actually rather expensive, to be honest with you. Is it? What but are we again, looking at? A uh, few thousand bucks um, to have them have them come through your home. And again, though, I, I do not view health as an expense. I view it as an investment. So That's it's right. something that I would like to invest in. <laughs> uh, but, but the reason I know is that when it's just really more anecdotal than anything, it's more kind of me being mindful of my experience. When I'm in front of a bunch of fluorescent lighting, when I'm in front of computers, when I'm in front of my cell phone, in front of the TV for extended period of time, 
I am absolutely drained. Um, when I'm around Wi-Fi for an extended period of time, I'm absolutely drained. And it takes me getting out in nature, doing a little bit of grounding or earthing uh, to really reconnect um, and get some get some more um, electrons back in the body so that I feel a more even flow. And so for me, it's been much more of, of a just uh, trial by error and feel by experience. And that's kind of where I'm at now. But some testing would be nice. Yeah. Well, it's certainly uh, opportunities galore to tighten it up even more. And again, it goes so much well beyond the food. Another central theme that Will and I try to harp on here. Everybody likes to put all the onus of your health on what you're putting in your mouth. But it it's so much more than that. And I'm really happy to have someone else who is a kindred spirit in believing in that here today. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's get to, to, to the regular format of this show. And what do we do here first on this show is we talk about hot topics. These are some various things that are happening out there in the world of nutritional health uh, that people are asking us about. And so if it's asked about a lot, maybe we should address it uh, rapid fire style. So you ready to go with hot <laughs> topics? Let's go. All right. And you're going to notice, guys, there's a little bit of a bent to all the questions and topics today because of who our special guest co-host is. I think you'll enjoy this. So the first one, can a ketogenic diet help with ocular migraines? Is this something you see pretty often? Yeah, well, I would say that I don't see it very often. Migraines, I see fairly often due to the nature of my position. And I do a lot of biofeedback, uh, which can be very helpful for migraines, um, but not ocular migraines. Uh, not, not that biofeedback doesn't help with ocular migraines, but I don't see ocular migraines what very often. What are ocular often. migraines? Can you define that term? Absolutely. Great question. Um, ocular migraines are visual disturbances that will present like flashing or shimmering light. Uh, many patients will say they see like squiggly lines that create circles in their field of vision or wow. even stars. Sounds hard. Yeah. So we call these. Yeah, it's no good. It's really no good. I mean, and we, we call these auras and it can certainly cloud our vision, but it's um, but actually it's it's not necessarily accompanied with pain like we would see with a classical migraine. So classical migraine is kind of like that head turning inward. It's a lot of tension. It can make you feel nauseated. It really hurts. And ocular migraines can be accompanied by pain, but not necessarily. And so, you know, I've met uh, many patients with migraines that have told me stories about pulling over on the side of the road because they couldn't drive um, because of visual disturbances or pain. Yeah. So we know that can really interfere with with functional abilities. But, you know, these aren't actually super common, even within patients with migraines. We only see about 20 percent suffering from auras or ocular um, related distress. Right. Um, so yeah, how, it, how would a keto help? Would it be the blood sugar regulation? Would it be the increased fats that help fuel the brain since we're 60 to 70 percent fat in the brain what would be the benefit that nutrition would play in this okay so in short a ketogenic diet yes can help with ocular migraines um we have to look at kind of what typically triggers migraines so migraines are typically triggered by things like bright lights loud sounds and yes even certain foods i mean there's certain foods that contain uh, different types of nutrients that can ignite um, or start migraines in certain people who are more sensitive to those to those migraines but we know that any type of migraine whether it's a classical or ocular migraine can be linked back to the good old i word inflammation so there's a lot of speculation as to what causes auras or these these ocular type migraines. But really, the belief is that it's a reduced amount of blood flow that's caused by inflammation. So we'll continue to keep inflammation the bad guy. And what we know is that migraines are a pain syndrome. Pain syndromes are always bound in inflammation. 
So what we want to do from a dietary standpoint is eliminate the primary contributors, which of course are sugar, refined carbohydrates, and living a ketogenic lifestyle, which can substantially reduce our frequency and severity of migraines, whether it be classical or ocular. So that's one way. Another way too is that from a nutritional standpoint, we know that a primary um, contributor to migraines is increased glutamate activity in the brain. So glutamate is actually our most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter and it increases our overall brain activity. And with a ketogenic diet, when we are truly producing ketones, we can actually significantly reduce the overactivity of glutamate. And what that will do will in turn reduce the occurrence and severity of migraines. So the over under on how many times you say inflammation is currently at 45. So get your bets in now, guys. He's already at eight. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you would uh, be wise to bet over on that one. Yes, way, way over. But well, you did well on the first hot topic. Let's get to the second one, Jay. Does eating keto improve the headaches? Uh, there's that word again that are associated with a brain colloid cyst. So I guess defining terms again, what is a brain colloid cyst? Yeah, so a brain colloid cyst is actually a benign tumor. It's a benign cyst that is typically located within the ventricles of our brain. These are actually fairly rare. They're, they're also congenital. But we also know, too, that they're progressive. They're really, though, slow in their progression. But the ventricles of our brain, that's where we house what's called cerebrospinal fluid. We actually make it and house it within the ventricles. And cerebrospinal fluid serves many functions, but the primary function is really to help protect our brains. So if we think about it in this sense, if our bodies and our heads are being jolted around or hit, um, then the cerebrospinal fluid will serve as a buffer. It'll protect our brains uh, from us nailing into our skulls and causing significant damage and injury. Unless you have some traumatic trauma, or we call that a TBI, traumatic brain brain injury where uh, it doesn't even matter if you have the the cerebrospinal fluid there to protect you. You've just been you've just been hit really hard. And so yeah. therefore you have some intensive damage and maybe even neuronal death in parts of the brain. But we typically will find these cysts uh, via MRI or CT scans. Uh, but yes, they can, of course, cause headaches. And the reason being is because they take up space within the ventricles. And what they do is they push um, everything, all the cerebrospinal fluid, towards the skull and then also towards the cortex, which is kind of the outer lying part of our brain. This pressure then results in headaches. So if the cyst also causes blockage, then what we can have is something called hydrocephalus, which many of your listeners may have heard of before, but that's excessive um, cerebrospinal fluid buildup, which is very, very dangerous. Um, but a good thing is, is that we're able to remove most of these cysts through different types of endoscopic techniques. But for those that do persist, it can certainly lead to a lot of headaches, a lot of loss of vision, and even loss of consciousness. Wow. I don't want to ever have a brain cyst. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. <sighs> well, uh, we're done with the headache questions in the hot topics. Let's go to the third featured question of the hot topics. Why does eating keto and fasting have such a calming effect on your mood and mental health? This is a common kind of spontaneous effect that a lot of ketonians experience. What's going on in there? This is a fun one, Jimmy. As I knew you know, it would I be. <laughs> As you know, I could spend hours among uh, hours unpacking this one, but let me just speak to some key points on this one. So let's first talk about neurotransmitter regulation. 
So when we take in processed foods, especially refined carbohydrates, what we're getting is we're getting a straight shot of serotonin and dopamine to, to the brain. They're first in line. That's why we get such a flood of emotional experience when we uh, have refined carbohydrates. That's why we feel so good. So the neurotransmitters that I just mentioned, serotonin and dopamine, they're associated with pleasure, happiness, and also addiction, which is important to keep in mind. But the problem with, with these effects is that they're typically extremely short-lived. So we crave more and more of it. And we, you know, we call that tolerance. And eventually what we do is we start depleting ourselves of the neurotransmitters or we don't respond to them the same way. Mm. Just like with insulin and insulin responses, when we have floods and floods of insulin, then a lot of times we just ourselves don't respond to them the same way that they used to. And in turn, that increases cravings and keeps us running down to the supermarket for us to buy more cookies, candy bars, and pastries. So it's a horrible, vicious cycle. But when we live a ketogenic lifestyle, we're able to get the same effects through foods that do not overflood our brains with these neurotransmitters. So think about when we eat foods that are high in tryptophan, which we convert tryptophan to serotonin. This is found in things like beef, lamb, pork, and cheese. We're going to end up reaping the same mood and mental health benefits but without having the crazy crash. And the crazy crash also brings me to another valuable point. When we live a ketogenic lifestyle, we don't bonk. And bonk being like a runner's term. I'm probably sure that you've heard of that. Oh, one. yeah. Dr. Finney uh, uh, hammered that one into me saying the keto is the anti-bonk diet for <laughs> runners. Which is, which is so true. Yeah. And the reason we don't bonk is because we end up having sustained energy because we're running on the fuel source that we were meant to be running on in the first place. And as you know, we have a heck of a lot more storage of it. So this keeps energy levels up and it keeps us more active, which is, of course, keeps us better at managing our mood states and the ups and downs of the SAD diet. You know, they can really make us irritable. So we end up feeling more vitality and more energy on a ketogenic diet, which helps us to engage in the things in life that we enjoy more without having those severe crashes like you would in the SAD diet. So you mentioned uh, like serotonin production. What about like GABA and some of the other kind of brain uh, uh, properties that has to be impacted as well? And they do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we could unpack this for hours, right? But I will yeah, speak we could. to some of the ones. <laughs> Give me the two minute version of this one. <laughs> I will. So all neurotransmitters are helped to be regulated by our dietary intake. So GABA is one that you mentioned, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which helps us to calm down. It helps us to cool down. Um, so with GABA, we know that we have enhanced GABA production with a ketogenic diet. And a lot of it is because um, our, our neurotransmitters are being um, talked to by ketones instead of being talked to by sugar. And in turn, what happens is, is that we know that GABA, for some reason, and other neurotransmitters, they listen to ketones more than they listen to sugar. They like sugar. They think that, oh, this is great. But they also, I think they have a mind of their own and they're smart enough to say, I don't think that this is going to last very well. I've, <laughs> I've, I've had this happen in the past. Whereas ketones are like, well, these things just keep coming. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's uh, as we know, a better source of fuel. And yet another reason why maybe for some people a constant keto uh, diet could be helpful in helping them calm their mood and get their mental health in order uh, because there is an argument you should cycle in and out of carbs, uh, you know, and, and and do it that way. And some people will probably get benefit from that, Jay. I, I know you talked about that when I had John Levita, but uh, but for some people that are dealing with some very serious kind of uh, mental health and mood issues, constant keto may be the the ticket. 
I think so. I think so. Again, you know, we speak about bioindividuality, so there's no one size fits all, which is great. I like I like that. But indeed, um, we do see that there are going to be plenty of individuals who reap benefits from staying on a continuous ketogenic diet from the mental health standpoint, from the cognitive enhancement standpoint. And, and again, like what I just mentioned, there's many reasons for that. But but you're right there. All right. Well, let's get to the fourth hot topic. Is there a period of keto adaptation that is necessary to see an improvement in EEG for persistent sleepiness? Sounds horrible to be in persistent sleepiness. <laughs> mm, yes. Yes, it does. Let's highlight again um, some terms. So some people might not be familiar with yep. what an EEG is. An EEG um, is, is short for electroencephalophagram, which actually measures electrical activity in the brain. So it allows us to see which brain waves are active in real time. So the primary uh, brain waves, there's four primary brain waves that we examine. Beta, which is indicative of a wakeful state. Alpha, which is indicative of a relaxed state or relaxation state. Theta, which is a sleepy or even a hypnotic state, and then delta, which is our slow waves or sleep state. So someone with persistent sleepiness, whether it be due to chronic insomnia, because this, yes, of course, insomnia can cause excessive sleepiness with the inability to fall asleep or maintain sleep. So it's a really bad one. Um, or narcolepsy um, is another one. We may see EEG readings of persistent and significant theta excitation. So the theta waves are kind of the most dominant waves there. And really, we only see high theta activity for those within, well, I'll say the quote unquote normal population um, who are about to fall asleep or who are, well, yes, really sleep deprived. <laughs> I see your theta, I see your theta waves. You, you, you put me in a full on theta wave, uh, uh, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> talking about EEGs, or maybe it's that soothing voice I have. That's what it is, the soothing <laughs> voice of Jay Wiles. Exactly. So to answer this question, you know, with ketogenic diets, as we know, there's always a period of keto adaptation. But with that said, we also need to rule out many other reasons why there is persistent sleepiness. So could it be diet related? Absolutely. And if it's not mediated by diet, then we certainly know it's moderated di by diet. However, there are other variables that can lead to persistent sleepiness, like overexposure to stress, poor sleep habits or hygiene, shift work, and really the list can go on there. So this means that you can become keto adapted and still not see a change in promoting wakefulness if you have all these additional chronic and persistent influencers like I just mentioned. And these are the things that really need to be parsed out before we can directly link the cause and effect of a ketogenic diet on EEG outcomes. But... I say all that to say this, um, that when we eat a ketogenic diet, we are much more prone to increasing overall energy and vitality. And we have a lot of research that says that this is working at the intracellular level within our mitochondria, which are our cell energy factories. So when we turn on the creation of more ATP and more ketones, this is going to inevitably promote more energy and more wakefulness. So I find that for myself and then for patients, when we live a ketogenic lifestyle and we're fully adapted to keto, then we typically will experience more wakefulness and vitality. And from an EEG standpoint, this should result in more beta and alpha dominance as opposed to the theta dominance. So, Jay, I wonder if someone ate hypocaloric, which is extraordinarily easy to do when you eat keto because the foods are so satiating. I wonder if a hypocaloric state would also contribute to this sleepiness. It could. Um, it could. What I find is that most people um, who overindulge um, uh, are, are actually the ones who are going to experience more sleepiness. Ah, what's going on there? 
The reason being typically is that if we think about what's promoting sleepiness, a lot of it is come uh, coming from our melatonin creation uh, or synthesis. So I mentioned earlier tryptophan and serotonin. So tryptophan is a protein that synthesizes or makes serotonin and serotonin actually makes melatonin. So when we overindulge the protein that is tryptophan, yeah. we create more serotonin, which in turn creates more melatonin. It can have some good benefits for the brain and for mood, but they're short lived because we end up falling asleep. So we don't yeah. have fun doing it. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, we have one more hot topic to get to. And the final one is, will a ketogenic diet be dangerous for someone with chronic anxiety and a general eating disorder? I had a couple of people write about this particular issue and that a doctor told them that it would be far too dangerous if you have chronic anxiety and then this other person had a general eating disorder, far, far too dangerous for you to go keto. Um, is that true? It's a good question. And I've actually gotten this question many times by many people. And I believe that it's one that is rather complex and doesn't have the simplest answer. So at the end of, of my my talk here, I guess you could say, <laughs> I may not have a straightforward answer. But let me speak predominantly to eating disorders um, yes. because eating disorders are actually chronic anxiety related disorders right. and are much more common in the general public than they're even aware. Um, so I know the question was was posed chronic anxiety and general eating disorder. But yes, but you're I'm saying gonna, they're synonymous. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So the primary eating disorders that I see clinically are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And what they all have in common is a significant preoccupation with food, with body weight, and with shape. And this will lead to extreme levels and experience of anxiety, which in turn results in extreme behaviors or extreme measures to take to, to help cope with that anxiety. So I will first say that if you have an eating disorder, I cannot stress the importance of seeking help for this. Um, there are many specialists, whether it be a psychologist, social worker, a therapist that can provide help, support and guidance that you need. Um, and so I don't want to underscore the importance of seeking um, psychological help due to the psychological nature of eating disorders. But my stance on keto from uh, for someone uh, with an eating disorder or someone who's recovering from an eating disorder is also quite different than my stance on fasting with someone with an eating disorder. Right. Now, I, I, yes, I want to make sure that I'm very clear on that. So for me, fasting is almost always a no go for me with someone who has an eating disorder. I agree. The reason is, is that you have to remember that someone with an eating disorder has an altered view of their relationship with food. So for them, food may be the thing that brings them extreme guilt or shame. So fasting can provide another opportunity for them to continue to disconnect with food and, and even kill them. So if someone with anorexia nervosa who's already in an extreme fasted state, if they completely fast, it may be the, the straw that broke the camel's back and could actually kill the individual. So I, I like to speak to that because a lot of times, you know, in, in the field of uh, a ketogenic lifestyle. We like to jump. We like to lump fasting um, in there with ketogenic diets. And so I wanted to speak to that as well. Thank you. But I, indeed. Um, but I will say that my end goal is for the individual I'm working with to make a, a firmer and more realistic connection with both food and how they view themselves. I want them to reconnect with food in a healthy way as possible. I mean, this is kind of our life force. This is what we do on a daily basis. Um, do I want them to create, uh, you know, reconnect with healthy food like we find in a ketogenic lifestyle? Absolutely. I mean, we know what, by what I was just talking about, there are so many anti-anxiolytic effects or anti-anxiety effects that come from a ketogenic lifestyle that can help these individuals. And I believe that keto really can be helpful in that sense. But 
for individuals with eating disorders, I'm not as much worried about the content of the, their food initially as I am with their relationship with the food as the primary target. Anti-anxiolytic. That is the word of the day, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I win the award. <laughs> I'm going to have to pull that out on Will. Oh, yes, I, I, I love the anti-anxiolytic effects of the ketogenic diet on the brain. <laughs> He'll yes. be like, Jimmy, who have you been talking to? <laughs> yes, indeed. indeed. I was telling him to go listen. But, you know, and I want to say one more thing. Yeah, yeah, go. Jimmy, because it just kind of popped up because, you know, when when we're ready to move forward, when someone is kind of really getting over the psychological aspects of an eating disorder, which can can take some time, I truly do believe that a ketogenic diet can be very powerful. Yes. Because if you think about think about someone with like binge eating disorder. So someone with binge eating disorder is normally not binging on steaks or broccoli. <laughs> it's typically tons Crappy and garbage. tons of carbs. Yep. It's carbs and sugar. So this is where truly living and learning to live a, a ketogenic lifestyle will be extremely beneficial. And I love that you gave the caveat. People with an eating disorder don't need to be fasting. When people have asked me about that since I wrote the complete guide to fasting, should somebody with an eating disorder fast? I'm like, oh, gosh, no. Their their relationship to food is too disordered. So get that in 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 line first. And then if through the healing process, it just spontaneously happens, then great. But forcing the issue on someone who already has a bad relationship with food is no bueno. Oh, absolutely. That's something that I we cannot stress uh, enough on this show. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pause here real quick. We'll be right back with today's kickoff question. Living la vida low carb, talking about a low carb diet. Uh -huh. Getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it. Yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life. Yeah, a real time indicator for ketosis called ketonics. Woo. It measures your breath for ketones. Are you burning fat? Uh -huh. It's the first of its kind. All my ketonians, where you at? Where you at? Hey, I'm just here to let you know. Wanna look and feel incredible? We living la vida low carb, get your body healthy and live long. Hey. Keep my fats high, high and my carbs low. Need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we own it, yeah, yeah. With ketonics, I'm burning fat and I'm on it, yeah, yeah. Living La Vida low carb, I do this every day. If you wanna burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co. And for my international followers, it's ketonics.com. Woo! Are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it, but also all the electrolytes, vitamins, protein, fat, and more that will meet one third of your daily needs? Then let me introduce you to Keto Chow. It's a quick and easy to mix shake that is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors, including chocolate, vanilla, 
chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21 meal bag. There's also a sample of all the things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a keto chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to jimmylovesketochow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. jimmylovesketochow.com We're back here on Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole with special guest co-host, Dr. Jay Wiles, drjwiles.com. He is a clinical uh, psychologist, uh, nutritional psychologist. I, I think I got it all in there, but it was just out of syntax. Clinical <laughs> nutrition psychologist. That's what he is. <laughs> and so uh, you ready for your first question here on Keto Talk? Let's do it. All right. So this one comes from Sean. Hi, Jimmy and Jay. I went into ketosis for a few months before Christmas with the hope that it might help me with chronic daily headaches that I've had for many years. It really helped me, and I'm hoping it can be the cure that I've been looking for for so long. However, there have been some side effects that I wonder if you could help with, like sore, dry eyes, which feels like I've drank too much alcohol. And how would you know that, Sean? Just kidding. <laughs> so what's going on with this? Is it liver issues, dehydration, lack of sleep? When I switched back over to a, quote, normal diet during Christmas, my eyes got a lot better. Since the beginning of this year, I've cut out my carbs again, but not fully keto, and the eye pain is back again. I've tried supplementing daily with magnesium, potassium, fish oil, a multivitamin, 5-HTP, a probiotic, and this thing called Butterbur, which is supposed to be good for headaches. I also put pink Himalayan sea salt in my water, drinking three liters of water a day. Any help you can give with this issue would be greatly appreciated and keep up the good work. Sean. So Sean has a question about headaches that's far different <laughs> than what we had earlier in the Hot Topics. What can I do to prevent these sore, dry eyes that came on when I switched over to keto to help with the chronic daily headaches? Mm, good question, um, because it's something that's actually come up a couple of times. Um, so I want to see if I can kind of address this um, somewhat in its entirety, but not over uh, getting too lost in the weeds here. Three hours later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing, you know, I would ask is what he meant by what well, he went back to a quote unquote normal diet. I mean, yeah. I would assume that he means an abnormal carbs, diet. Probably. Yes, yeah. Yeah. A sad diet. You know, I'm curious um, if he saw a relapse in headaches when he did that um, because his headaches went away. He had a remission of headaches. Oh, yeah. He didn't tell us that. Yeah. So that he would said be his real... eyes got better. But yeah. 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 So, you know, because if he had a remission of headaches, but it resulted in dry eyes, then one of the initial questions that I would have is, you know, which would he prefer? Which is worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My guess is that he might say they would have rather have dry eyes. But, you know, luckily we have some remedies for dry eyes. So my first suggestion is, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Now I'm truly sounding like someone from South Carolina. <laughs> if, you know, if Sean had, Sean was the name, right? Yeah. Sean, if Sean yeah. had been in nutritional ketosis and it eliminated headaches, but resulted in dry eyes, then we can work with that. So we asked about dehydration, which is an extremely important topic. And I don't think it matters. You know, I, I'll say I, it doesn't matter if you're on keto or any other diet. Hydration is always important for yes. eye health. It's always important for eye health and health in general. So we know that if we increase our overall intake of water, and again, I'll throw in there purified, filtrated, clean water, then we can increase our overall tear production. 
But let me back up and just talk really quickly as to why a ketogenic diet helps to reduce, uh, you know, the migraines. And we've already kind of talked about that aspect. So I'm just going to highlight it again, just really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, to put it in its simplest form, here we go. I word inflammation reduction. Nine. <laughs> yes, nine. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get to that 45. Uh, I, I've got money on it. So <laughs> one of the primary means, um, you know, that, that we all know, and we just talked about too, is again, sugar and what sugar can do and also oxidize fat to increase inflammation. And then also too, we know that what it can do to glutamate regulation. So if you didn't pick that up earlier, again, glutamate is that excitatory uh, uh, neurotransmitter within our brain. And when we have an overexcitation um, of glutamate, which can come from a standard American diet, then it can lead to further migraines and ketones. And more particularly, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate can help to block and reduce glutamate activity, which will lead to, to an occurrence of migraines. So when it comes to the eye, ha- eye health aspect, you know, there's a, there are a few things that I, I always ask questions about and I always want to make sure of. One would be I would actually look to see what your um, overall vitamin A intake is. So this is retinol because a deficiency in vitamin A is actually associated with reduction in our tear production, which can, of course, lead to dry and sore eyes. So we can actually increase our overall vitamin intake through supplementation. But I would also say that predominantly we want to look to intake it through foods that are high in vitamin A and are also ketogenic. Like these would be. Yeah, good question. These are things like organ meats. Um, so like beef or lamb liver. But yes. I will say be um, be cautious of it because there are some people who have migraines who are sensitive to organ meats. Um, so really? I would say try it. Yes. What's yes. That that's about? that about what's the mechanism that would make them sensitive? Uh, so it's actually tyramine. Um, so tyramine um, is a protein that's found within beef, lamb liver, um, a lot of other organ meats. And we found that uh, with an increase as a correlation between an increase in tyramine intake and to increased um, uh, migraine um, experience. We don't know the overall mechanism of it yet, uh, but we just know that some people are extremely sensitive uh, to tyramine. So I would say for anyone with 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 uh, migraines, be cautious of that. But the great thing about organ meats and especially like beef and lamb liver is they're also really high in CoQ10. And CoQ10 has also been found to help reduce migraines. So we're getting the beef and lamb liver for the for the uh, effects of, of, of the dry eyes. But we're mm-hmm. also getting kind of a two for one because it helps with migraines as well. Other foods that are high in, in vitamin A are salmon, goat cheese, spinach and kale. And all these things can really help to promote healthy eyes and soft tissue. I, I do want to, Jimmy, point out another area, sure. um, something that is important to us, you and I, and I know that we talked about it um, kind of at the beginning of our show. I would ask Sean, how much time are you spending in front of the computer, mm. in front of tablets, in front of other means of media that's going to result in eye strain? And we see this as an absolute epidemic in our society. Um, and we're leading, it's now leading to macular degeneration in children and adolescents. That's something that happens with extremely old people or used to. And now we're, we're seeing something that was once rare become extremely, extremely common, which is very scary. Sounds so familiar, I, like uh, type 2 diabetes used to be what, adult onset diabetes? And now, now everybody's... Don't hear that term <laughs> yeah. anymore. No, yeah. it's just diabetes. Everybody knows what that is now. Yes, yes. So, so I would say that if that is a problem, then take a step away from it. So when you're having headaches and you're having dry eye pain, um, but especially for the, for, the, for the dry eyes, increasing the vitamin A, reducing eye strain by like wearing blue blocking glasses, getting more direct sunlight, 
drinking more water, increasing salt intake or electrolyte intake, and then also quality sleep. Sleep helps to repair our eyes. So make sure you're getting that sleep. And I believe you mentioned that um, if, if it was something that could be happening yeah. um, that causes dry eyes. And it can. Absolutely. Well, Sean, you got a mouthful of an answer there with a lot of good information from Jay. So I hope that helped you out. And thank you for your question. And Jay, we're up to the health headlines portion of the show. This is one of my more favorite parts of the show, uh, simply because there's a bunch of crap that's out there in the news media <laughs> that, that needs to be countered. And the biggest news story that came out last week has got to be that whole low carb diet linked to higher odds for AFib. And so this is out of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, there's no shortage of low-carb diets to try these days, keto, paleo, Atkins, but new research suggests that over time, living low-carb can raise your risk of a heart condition called atrial fibrillation or AFib. So people who regularly got, and this is the coup d'etat of this whole story, regularly got 45% of their calories from carbohydrates, were 18% more likely to develop AFib than those who ate a moderate amount of carbs, 45%. Uh, to 52%. Okay. So hmm. they, in the headline, low carb diets in the story, keto, but then they say 45% of calories from carbs. So let's, let's play the game. 2000 calorie diet, 45% of your diet coming from carbohydrate, four calories per gram of carb. We're looking at almost 250 grams of carbohydrate and they're calling that keto. That's, Bad that's science keto, all around. Say again. That's certainly keto. Come on, you know this. My goodness, my carb <laughs> sensitivity has not ever been that good. <laughs> right, right. What do you think about this? I mean, I could go on and on, but just just putting a finer point on that at the beginning here, guys, they're calling it keto, they're calling it low carb, but no keto person, no low carb person would recognize a 45% carbohydrate diet as being keto or low carb. Oh, yeah, I don't know where to start either with this one. <laughs> yeah, I read this one when you sent it over and, and my jaw dropped to the ground. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, come on. Like the the fallacies um, as in regards to a research standpoint, yes. were, were just way off. So as you know, Jimmy, and, and to for your listeners, so my background is I am a scientist and I'm a researcher. I mean, that's how I was, I was trained in my doctoral studies. And one of the things I know is that we can never, number one, we can never infer, infer a correlational study to make causation. So we know that ice cream sales are correlated with homicides in New York City. So as ice cream sales rise and they fall, so do homicides. Causation? No, I think not. And this research study, even though it was faulty in the groups and the macro um, division, yeah. it was faulty on that end, but it was also faulty from just a, a correlational um, study that was trying to infer causation. And they say they're not trying to infer causation within the study, uh, but the but the problem is is that they they were providing causatory statements um, that low carb uh, is required. I'm sorry, is is the reason why um, these these results are the way they are. And so, you know, in, until they get an RCT that shows me this, yes. then really this epidemiological type of study is is flawed. Well, and, and this is the clue, you guys. When you see in a story like this that the U U.S. National Institutes of Health uh, had almost 14,000 people involved, you can almost guarantee it's an observational epidemiological type of study where they're basically looking at data uh, points 
that are from a whole bunch of places. <laughs> and so they're not exactly. actually looking at people. They're looking at folders that included people and, and study conclusions of other studies all kind of smooshed together. And as Jay said, give me an RCT, a randomized controlled trial, double blind, placebo, the whole shebang. But the problem with those kind of studies when it comes to nutrition is they're incredibly difficult and expensive to do. If you did one that even included just a couple hundred people, you're looking at well over a hundred million dollars to lock these people up in a metabolic ward for upwards of a year. It ain't cheap, and that's why they don't do those kinds of ones as often as these others. But these are the kind that make the big splash. Low-carb diets linked to higher odds for AFib. What they should have said is moderately high-carb diet leads to higher odds for AFib because that's what it showed. Yes, exactly. I mean, we're, we're talking about epidemiological studies, like you said, which are looking at uh, years of collected data and typically from a nutritional standpoint – are food logs. And they're yes. food logs that were developed um, by people who were trying to say, let me remember back, you know, a few months yeah. ago what I had. I can't remember barely what I had yesterday. Yeah, what'd you now, eat last week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can remember what I had, uh, you know, yesterday, but I, I don't know about last week, even though I tend to be a little bit regimented with my food because I like to keep it simple. He's a nerd. <laughs> yeah, I am. I know. I know. I try. And I'm only eating meat, fatty meats right now. So my, my diet's yeah. pretty easy to remember too. So. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, and so I, I think that just from a research standpoint, it was flawed. Um, from a macro standpoint, it was flawed. And I don't know if you've noticed this too, Jimmy, yeah. but they really didn't talk about overall protein and fat intake. They just focused on carbs. So these these people could actually have been doing low fat from yes. what I was reading and, 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 and their perspective, what low carb is. So low carb, low fat. Um, and and had these results. So I'm not really making much of this. I mean, there was a couple of things that I thought stood out that I thought were important um, yeah. for us to discuss. The biggest thing was, is that they indicated that there's, uh, and, and I would say that there's something to their idea that electrolyte imbalances can affect heart rhythm. Yes. And they mentioned that within the article. Uh, but, and that's why, you know, anyone who's living a ketogenic lifestyle or starting down that pathway, we always tell them to increase their electrolyte intake. That's right. That's put, right. Yeah. Put salt on your food, put it in your water. These are crucial. So, you know, on that end, maybe we can take something from this article, but for the greater sense of the article, throw it to the side. Well, and if they had actually looked at a ketogenic diet, I would teetotally be all in on that electrolyte, uh, you know, reminding people of that. But they never got close. I guarantee you most people that ate a 45 percent carbohydrate diet, which by definition, you've only got 55 percent left for the rest. So let's say they did, you know, 25 percent protein. That is pretty low in fat from a percentage of calories, even like the so-called balanced diet of the zone diet still only had 40 percent carbohydrate 30%, 30% for the other two macros. So yeah, this one shocked me that it got so much play. The problem is it ended up on Good Morning America and they did their whole thing. Oh, look, look at all you keto dieters, this, blah, blah, blah. And most people freaked out about it. I got a million emails from people. Are you going to address this? I'm like, they didn't test keto. Why would I address it? Right. Yeah. Jillian Michaels was probably having a grand time too. <laughs> yeah. Among other yeah, it, people, but yes. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I think it's one of those things that right now keto is under the radar because it is the newest, not newest, but it is the, the highest trend. Um, it's the, it's 
the thing right now. And so that is why I think it's going to get more publicity, even if it's just totally inaccurate publicity. (laughs) Well, we saw what Jillian did, but you know, uh, so my new movie's coming out. Keto sucks. And so I want you to go watch my movie and, uh, yeah, don't, don't, you'll, you'll have atrial fibrillation if you eat keto. And so, um, go watch me in my movie. And I can almost see that happening, that there would be, (laughs) be just such (laughs) kind of jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, you either really, really, really love keto uh, a la Jennifer Aniston and Kim Kardashian and some, Gwyneth Paltrow, some of the ones talking about it, Halle Berry, or you really, really diss on it. There's kind of no no kind of ambivalence towards it. <laughs> You're right. I, I think that's just kind of the nature of our society. Everything's so polarizing these days, yes. whether it be politics or diets or lifestyle choices. It's just so polarizing. And we're just kind of in the middle of the battle, unfortunately. Whatever happened to mind your own business and you be you and I'll be me. (laughs) Those days are long gone, Jay. (laughs) Indeed. Well, let's get to the next health headline because this one is really awesome. NIH study probes impact of heavy screen time on young brains. This was published in Bloomberg. Brain scans of adolescents who are heavy users of smartphones, tablets, and video games look different than those of less active screen users, Preliminary results from an ongoing study uh, that's also funded by the NIH, according to a report on 60 Minutes. That's the finding of the first batch of scans of 4,500 9- and 10-year-olds. Scientists will follow these children thousands more for a decade to see how childhood experiences, including using digital devices, affect the brain's emotional development and mental Health. So I'll let you kind of go a little bit further along, but uh, it's $300 million they're spending, speaking of very expensive studies. But man, oh man, you're living in the midst of this. I'm sure you've got parents bringing in kids now that you're taking a look at and you're already seeing some of the detrimental effects. Yeah, Jimmy, when I when I read this one, um, it scared me. Like, it honestly scared me when I read that uh, that whole seven hours of screen time um, yes. that they were talking about with these with these kids, my jaw dropped to the ground. I mean, I shook my head because this is incredibly sad. The amount of detriment that is it's going to have for this children, it, it's just exponential. We can't even begin to start to measure. And so, you know, in the in the article, I mean, I'm having a hard time even thinking about it because I have a, a kid of my own, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I just need to keep him away from all technology because <laughs> I cannot send him down the path. How old is he? You know, we're he just turned a year a month ago. So he's oh, a young wow. man. He's, yeah, he's, and he's talking and walking and chasing, we're chasing him. That's for sure. Nice. <laughs> but what we're, what we're already seeing and what this article indicated is that we're starting to see premature thinning of the cortex of the brain. Mm. Cortex of the brain, again, is kind of the, our, our powerhouse of our brain. And, and the reason we're seeing this is because neurons are dying. So remember, this is the most advanced and most recently evolved part of our brain. We have process all of our uh, information, assimilate all of our information within the cortex. I mean, you know, they mentioned that, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting, they mentioned, you know, quote, that they don't know if this will be a bad thing, end quote. And I'm kind of floored by that, that they don't have the predictive ability to foresee how detrimental this this can be. And imagine would it be a good thing? I know. I know. There's no possible way that this could be a good thing from a biological standpoint and then from a psychological standpoint. And, you know, let me speak to that psychological aspect, because this is just as important also to sure. as the as the physiological, because they're both very interconnected. What we're finding right now is just an absolute, complete disconnect from genuine and authentic socialization yes. for a 
false sense of socialization. We are seeing children being presented with false and fantastical views of the world and what they should be living up to. And there are also other just poor health behaviors that accompany this, like mindless eating that occurs with screen time. And so when you couple these things together um, and, 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 and couple screen time with disconnecting with like family, friends, nature, toss in horrible eating pat uh, patterns and, and habits, and you're going to have an absolute cognitive disaster on your hands. And so what I love about this study is that we are exposing it. We're bringing it to light. And we're saying, hey, listen, it's time to wake up. I mean, the screen time is not good for our kids. And you know what? It's not good for our adults either. We need to make sure that we're taking that into consideration. But these are developing minds where we're seeing neuronal death in developing minds. We're not supposed to start seeing neuronal death like this until we get a little bit older. And I would argue, too, that the neuronal death we're seeing as we get older is due to behavioral um, bad behavioral habits and patterns. So I was floored, Jimmy, to hear about this this data, um, but it's not surprising, honestly, which is even more scary. Well, and kudos to the NIH for being willing to look at this because this is kind of the unintended consequence of progression in technology. All this kind of iPhone, iPad, you know, all, all this stuff that we have at our disposal now at our fingertips that has now become very affordable. What is the unintended consequence on so many aspects of our lives? And I'm wondering, as these kids get older, like you mentioned earlier, the whole psychological connection with how you interact with people, you know, I, I, I shudder. Are we going to have a bunch of robots? Maybe. You, you've seen that movie Wally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that might be floaty chairs. <laughs> yeah, you know, that might be like a gross exaggeration. But in a sense, we kind of are headed that direction, which is unbelievable. I mean, I'm not that old, Jimmy. Uh, but I remember as a kid, I was never indoors, you know, watching TV or playing devices. Right. Uh, I was outside. I was playing. Um, I was I was w with nature. Um, and again, not to say my childhood was any better than anyone else's. But what it was, was it gave me an opportunity to not sit there and be inundated with information, uh, with fantastical ideas ideas of what the world is, even though it's not that way. And then uh, also getting this false sense of socialization because I had real socialization. It was authentic. It was authentic. It was genuine with other people. And we're moving far away from that because we feel like we're getting, we're getting closer to others when we're just really moving farther away. Well, and never mind not ever getting outside. You never get exposure to the sun, which we know has so many great benefits to getting circadian rhythm in order. And there's just so much to unpack with this, um, not that we're anti-technology, but technology in doses rather than just unlimited. You wouldn't let your kid go down the ice cream store and just say, all right, eat all the ice cream cones that you want until you're sick. Um, you wouldn't yeah. do that. That would be irresponsible parenting. And yet how many parents just hand over an iPad and iPhone, just say, go to town. Absolutely. It's overexposure. And a lot of it comes um, somewhat out of adult selfishness, to be honest with you. I've seen this clinically. Babysitter. Yeah, it's a it's a great babysitter. Um, the kid's not going to have you're not going to have to worry about watching the kid as intently as you would if, if they didn't have it. And so that means more of our time as adults gets taken away from us. And we like to boohoo about it. And uh, we end up doing this to our kids. And I could get on a soapbox about this. But, you know, uh, it's just something that it's got to change. And I'm glad that the NIH is able to shed more light onto this for the yes. general public. Well, I knew you would like that health headline uh, with what you do. So I'm glad we, we riled up. We riled him up today, guys. So thanks, Jay, for that. We have one more health headline to get to before the study. And this one's out of Stuff, which is a New Zealand newspaper. Diet for Alzheimer's 
Waikato trial to pit ketogenic and healthy diets against the disorder. So what if treatment for Alzheimer's could come from the supermarket, two diets, the recommended uh, healthy recommended diet and the ketogenic diet? I'm assuming they mean by healthy recommended low fat. Uh, we'll face off in a new study to see what makes the most difference for people with the progressive brain disease. Researchers behind the project are currently looking for people to be a part of the trial. Alzheimer's is the elephant in the room in medicine, says the neurologist researcher involved in this. Heart disease, stroke, even cancer, they're not increasing rapidly, but Alzheimer's is doubling every two decades. We don't have anything on the horizon that will improve it. Improve it. So the lead investigator is looking to do a 12-week trial that would look at this. And of course, this would be kind of a pilot study, you would hope, Jay, for a much bigger study down the road. But this is exciting news because we've known within research circles, type 3 diabetes is what they've been calling Alzheimer's forever. It's just now catching on in the mainstream. I remember talking to a gentleman on Living La Vida Low Carb show over a decade ago, Dr. Larry McCleary. Uh, and he talked about type three diabetes kind of being commonplace. I remember when he said it the first time, I'm like, whoa, diabetes of the brain. And yet now we're catching on and now researchers are wanting to look into it. Yes, absolutely. Exciting news here. You know, I, I cringe a little bit just because I'm thinking, you know, we, I always get excited to see that these research studies are coming out. They say they're going to utilize a low carb, high fat or ketogenic diet. And then like the you know first study that we talked about, it yes. ends up not being that way. So if they consider, you know, 200 grams, 250 grams of carbs per day, low fat or ketogenic, then, yeah, if you're able to put yourself into ketosis with that, like, come to tell me your secret. <laughs> but they but, did say in the article that they're going to use coconut oil, avocado, no starchy veggies, and even um, berries will be the only fruit that they have. They're trying to mimic the effects of what a fasting diet would be, which was the original intent of a ketogenic diet anyway, was to try to feed children who had epilepsy um, and yet give them the same benefits of controlling their seizures that they got from fasting. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And and that will be really good um, if they're able to kind of follow through with a true ketogenic diet and place it up against, I believe they indicated like the Japanese diet, right. um, Mediterranean diet, and then like the quote unquote healthy diet. Mm -hmm. um, so I will be absolutely fascinated to see the research that they get here. Because, um, you know, the first question they posed is, is what if Alzheimer's could come from the supermarket? Yes. And it kind of it kind of made me laugh because I, I was feeling like, yeah, we know we know it can. Um, <laughs> we're just we're just looking for optimization. With, yes. with how it can help. Yeah. So this uh, this trial, you guys, is expected to start later this year and uh, supported by the Waikato Medical Research Foundation. We'll keep our eye on this one for you and give you any updates. And obviously, when they publish the study, I'm sure we're going to be all over it for you here on Keto Talk. But we're up to the study portion of the show, Jay. And this is a, another fun part of the show because we get to look at new research that is out there. And this one, the headline, new study links Alzheimer's disease with liver function and diet. Scientists have presented new research pointing to, a, to the liver as a potential culprit in the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Presented at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, the research suggests that a compound produced in the liver can confer neurocognitive protections. And when the liver cannot effectively produce those compounds then cognitive deficits can result in the brain. 
So I'll let you get all geeky with some of the other things and kind of the design of the study. But this this is really cool because, again, it underscores the whole type three diabetes thing again, because if there's a liver connection, that's not surprising at all. Yeah, here we go, Jimmy. I mean, this is some fascinating research with potential vast implications for dietary interventions and more specifically ketogenic interventions for those that have cognitive um, disorders and dysregulation like Alzheimer's. So the article details a class of lipids called plasmalogens, and these are made in the liver and will eventually, or we should say hopefully will eventually, make their way up to the brain. Plasmalogens are responsible for linking the synapses amongst neurons and making these connections more effective. So our neurons talk to one one another via synapses. Those are kind of like our communicative centers. And we have to have our neurons talking to one another for anything in our body to happen and anything in our mind to happen. Um, these are, uh, so when they found, or, or I guess I should say they found that when the liver is not making enough of these plasmalogens, this actually increases overall cognitive deficits. And there's other studies that have demonstrated um, this, and they've also um, just kind of shown that the reduction in the creation of this lipid in the liver will play a role in the onset of Alzheimer's. But the liver has also been found to be a place where um, the genes responsible for beta amyloid proteins are expressed. So we know that those with Alzheimer's disorders, a fair amount of them, not all of them, but a fair amount of them, uh, we find beta amyloid plaques within their brain, uh, which is uh, essentially plaques that kind of block neuronal signaling and can lead to cognitive um, decline. So we're finding that there is something to liver dysfunction and a linkage to cognitive um, decline. What I love about this article is that it goes on to say that the most interesting connection between Alzheimer's formation may be, ding, 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 dietary effects. That Who result knew? In, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They found it was dietary effects that result in liver dysfunction. So we see this uh, in a strong relationship between they identified non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and increased risk for Alzheimer's. So the major contributor, what we know is the major contributor to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is being an increased consumption of sugar and more specifically fructose as it's highly processed in the liver. And after time, what we see is we see degradation of what's called peri excuse me, peroxiomes. Easy for geez. you to say. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, it was it was like not coming out there. It's one of those words. That See, not guys, even, out there. even the brain health guys, they have trouble uh, <laughs> speaking words as well. <laughs> exactly. So let's try it again. Peroxisomes is where I was going um, in the liver. And what peroxisomes are, are um, responsible for is the creation of these um, plasmalogens, these lipids um, that help with the neuronal connections. So what do we need to do? We need to start detoxing our liver, but we don't need to be doing it through fruit cocktails or fruit fast or oh, juicing. Man. Right. Because we're just creating more havoc in our liver. Yes. So we don't have those plasmalogens that are reaching the brain. So this is this is great. I mean, this is a fascinating research that once again shows that not only um, is is Alzheimer's kind of connected to blood sugar regulation, uh, but it's there's something that we can do about it. And you know what I really love about this study and and other research that's coming out is no longer will we call this old timers disease because it's not about getting older. It's not an inevitability that you're going to get Alzheimer's disease just because you get older. The reason exactly. it tends to happen in older people is that disease progresses to the point that then it basically takes over the brain. And that's why we lose so many people 
mentally long before we that we lose them physically it has nothing to do with just getting older uh, i hope to have my synapses firing on all cylinders by the time i get to 70 80 90 years old hopefully if god willing i live that long you're, you're you're so correct in that one of the things that i get a lot from from many patients who are coming in with cognitive complaints like major neurocognitive disorder or alzheimer's disease is they will say you know this was this was this was genetic and i yeah. will say that there is genetic components there are genetic components that we know of but predisposition does not equate to predestination yes and i i always drive that home to people um, and say that, listen, if you have a history of or a family history of Alzheimer's, there's a genetic link there. If you know it through testing, then let's work on what we can do to prevent it from occurring. It doesn't mean that, oh, hey, let me throw everything out the window. I'm predestined for it, which means it's just going to happen. No, it may mean that you're predisposed to it. It doesn't mean that you're predestined. And that is the route that you have to head down. It totally ignores epigenetics. Uh, I have a strong family history of heart disease with just about every male in my family has had heart attacks or died and, and all of this. And so because of keto, I'm able to express uh, not turn on that gene that would make me more uh, propensity to have heart disease. So same with this this issue here with Alzheimer's, just because it might run in your family and other people in your family did. You can have epigenetic expression of it because of your lifestyle choices. You got it. Yeah. Well, let's pause one more time. We'll be right back with today's featured questions. Have you been looking for a quality brand of CBD oil and didn't know where to turn? Let me introduce you to Botan CBD. Go to BotanCBD.com. That's B-O-T-A-N-C-B-D.com. And you'll see a full line of CBD oil products. The benefits of CBD oil are plentiful, including pain relief, anti-inflammation, mental clarity and focus, stress and anxiety reliever, and the list goes on. I've been using Botan CBD oil on my sciatica pain, and it makes it disappear. You can rub it on the body or take it orally and you can trust that Botan CBD is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. They are a pharmaceutical grade organic CBD small batch and handcrafted for you. Head on over to BotanCBD.com and use the code Jimmy at checkout for 15% off your first order. Live life well. Botan CBD. Check out LifeSense products featuring the most potent C8 MCT oil and powder, BHB exogenous ketone salts with only natural sweeteners, and new to the world, C8 MCT oil for dogs. All of these products are scientifically formulated by Dr. Alvin Berger, who is the world-renowned lipid biochemist and nutritionist, as well as an expert in ketogenic fats. LifeSense has developed a custom easy pour bottle for C8 MCT oil, and they've introduced more innovative state-of-the-art nutritional products. Go to LifeSenseProducts.com to get your premium products all proudly made in the USA for the low-carb lifestyle. LifeSenseProducts.com. We're back here on Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole, special guest co-host, Dr. Jay Wiles. I hope you've enjoyed Jay. Jay's a cool guy. I, lo I love hanging out with you today, Jay. So thanks for helping me answer these questions. We got a bunch of them left in the show. So you ready to rock this? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Lisa has the first one. 
Hello, Jimmy and Dr. Wiles. I'm a female in my early 40s. I have elevated DHEAS coming in at 509, which is well outside the range. My endocrinologist did additional testing to rule out congenital adrenal hyperplasia and nothing came up. I also have elevated postprandial blood sugars due to metabolic syndrome, which also comes with extra weight around my midsection. My question for you guys is this. Could my glucose insulin issues be the reason why my DHEAS has increased, or is it vice versa? And will keto help bring this level into normality? I've been doing keto for several months. I've lost almost all the extra weight around my middle, but I'd love to know more about this DHEA thing. Thanks for your help, Lisa. So this isn't something that's on the radar screen of a lot of people, but this was really important. I thought nobody better than Jay Wiles to help answer this question. Will keto help normalize DHEAS levels as blood sugar and insulin levels come down into the healthy range as a result of eating keto? Yes, Lisa, this is a really great and a really important question, honestly. We need to first take a step back and talk about what DHEA is, because a lot of people get DHEA and DHA confused. Mm -hmm. So let's let's start there. So DHA is the omega-3 fatty acid that we find in fish oil, and it's typically found in our brain, and it's used to promote cognitive enhancement, and let me be clear, is not the same as DHEA. So DHEA is androstenolone, which is an endogenous or it's something that we make within our body steroid hormone that's responsible for numerous physiological functions, but it really predominantly operates to synthesize androgens and a neurostero- and as a neurosteroid. Um, an androgen is a sex hormone. So testosterone, estrogen, DHT, uh, we find it in both males and females and have um, uh, and, and have it in both of us. But whereas a neurosteroid, it acts on certain receptors within the brain. So what we typically see is DHEA levels peak in our mid to late 20s, and then it will slowly decline with age. So within like the anti-aging community, many are taking like DHA in supplement form because we can't get DHEA through nutrition. But I'll talk about that here more in a minute. Um, uh, and they take it as a f- supplement for depression, obesity, cognitive improvement, and overall physical performance. And really what we found is that there are some studies to suggest um, that there are merits to taking this supplement for some things. But those studies, honestly, they're, they're rather limited. So with Lisa being in her early 40s, she is really at the start of seeing this hormone start to drop, or I should say she should be at the start of seeing this hormone start to drop. So she had what's called a a DHEAS test. Uh, This is looking at androstenolone sulfate, which is what DHEA is converted to by our adrenal glands and our liver. So this is a blood test predominantly used to assess functioning of our adrenal glands. So we can look at DHEAS to look at the functioning of of our adrenal glands. It's normally given to women who have concerns regarding low libido. So they're looking to see if they have low DHEAS um, or excessive hair growth or irregular periods. Some of those can be due to excessive DHEAS um, or just really odd hormonal changes. So when we take a step back and we think about what the adrenal glands are, so the adrenal glands are endocrine glands. They actually sit right above our kidneys and they're in direct communication with our hypothalamus and our pituitary glands, which are found in our brain. So these all speak together, our hypothalamus, our pituitary gland, and then our adrenal gland. Our adrenal gland is really uh, what is, is responsible for producing cortisol and adrenaline, hence the name adrenal found within the name of the hormone adrenaline. 
when we look at Lisa's DHEAS levels, um, we we see that a normal level is actually 32 to 240 micrograms Whoa, per decimal. She's more than double that. Right. She's yeah. She's she's more than double that on the highest end, end right. of the range. So what this says is that she's producing a lot of androgens, um, and there's a lot of dysfunction within her adrenal glands. I um I, I thought it was interesting. She said that she indicated um, that her endocrinologist had ruled out what's called uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. What this is, that's a genetic disorder, and um, it results when we have increased androgens due to a lack of certain enzymes. And then we also see some other reasons for a high DHEAS can actually be things like polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which can be ruled out typically by like a pelvic exam. So those are always things to rule out. So PCOS is something to keep on the radar, which is why I threw that out And it's there. related to insulin resistance as well. Absolutely. They're all interconnected. Um, and, and so that is something that we, that we need to make sure we want to rule out PCOS, um, because of all those factors that, that she's mentioned, um, but also to see if there's not something else going on that can't be attributing to this, because what it seems like, um, Lisa is asking here is basically what can keto help, can keto help or can keto contribute to dysfunction in this area? So what we're trying to see now um, with the data in relation to like a ketogenic diet is what are the effects of the ketogenic diet on the adrenals? Because remember, DHEAS is looking at adrenal functioning and overall adrenal glands. And so I've not actually come across any clinical studies that suggest that a, a ketogenic diet will lower DHEAA, but I have seen this anecdotally. Um, and again, it comes back to our adrenal functioning. When we intake large amounts of processed foods, when we place significant wear and tear on our adrenals because we have such strong insulin and glucose fluctuations, this can actually signal the release of adrenaline through what we call our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis. And this is what is kickstarted when we're in like fight or flight mode. So stress mode. And when we have chronic um, stress that occurs over a long period of time can actually lead to adrenal fatigue um, where we feel immensely just out of energy. And so when we're on a ketogenic diet and have those blood, uh, blood sugar regulated and stabilized, then we're actually going to better regulate um, these hormones. I would say, too, one last thing mm -hmm. is that we also know that when we raise glucocorticoids within our bloodstream, these are things like cortisol, adrenaline, uh, the, the hormones that are being released from our adrenal glands when we're in fight or flight mode. This will also actually raise our blood sugar because the brain is telling the body we're in fight or flight mode. We got to go. There's a mountain lion coming right at us. <laughs> so we need all the energy we can to escape or take on the threat that's in front of us. And in turn, we know that this can alter DHEA levels and can lead to things like excessive weight gain, especially around our midsections. And this is where keto is going to be a huge player in the game and can be quite effective. So for Lisa, I think it's going to be extremely important for her to monitor those DHEA levels yeah. as she continues keto to see what happens. Because, you know, right now we're in a little bit of an uncharted territory. Because we don't have enough research that supports it. Exactly. And a lot yeah. of our DHEAS tests like she had are really looking at overall adrenal functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and so what it's speaking to is that she has got massive amounts of adrenal hormones and androgens or sex hormones that are yeah. being released. And for a lot of people, we see that they're supplementing with DHEA to actually increase DHEA right. and, adrenal, and adrenal functioning. She's got the opposite problem. <laughs> it's kind of like the diabetic that's making 200 units of uh, insulin. Because their yes, body's pumping yeah. it out so much, yeah. Right. And then you have type ones that don't make any, so they have to, you know, use exogenous sort. Yeah, it's it's so amazing how the body works.
Oh, it truly is. Well, Lisa, thank you for your question. And uh, yeah, uh, Jay gave you a, a mouthful there. So I hope some of that helped you out. Let's get to the second featured question of the day. Yes, uh, we, we don't do one hour shows when I get guest co-hosts because they're not used to the rhythm of like moving it along. But I'm really loving <laughs> this today, Jay. I, I hope the listeners are as well. So <laughs> I, I hope so, too. They'll probably email you, tell you it's too long. Never have me back. Tell on that again. Jay guy, shut up already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't be the first time I've heard that. I was going to say, and that's just your wife today. Oh, just kidding. Uh, oh, just kidding. <laughs> well, let's get to the second one. No, you're doing just fine. I'm messing with you, dude. Tiara <laughs> has this one. Hi, Jimmy and Jay. I love keto talk. I find it so helpful. I've been looking for information about stroke and keto, but have not found anything yet. My boyfriend had a couple of strokes many years ago. He now suffers from brain fog, chronic pain, and other quality of life issues. I've been eating keto for a couple of months, and I've seen so many great benefits. I can't help but think that, the, that my boyfriend would also benefit from doing this as well. Is this wise? Thank you for answering my question, Chiara. So Chiara wants to know, can a low-carb ketogenic diet help bring about healing for the symptoms of someone who has experienced strokes in the past? Another great question. Reason being is because we are seeing dramatic rises in stroke, even in those who are quite young. I mean, just look at what we saw within the past week with Luke Perry, yes. who died at the age, yeah, died at the age of 52 from a massive so stroke. Very sad to see this. We, did, we didn't used to see this again at the age of 52. This is a real epidemic that can't be ignored um, because the statistics are now demonstrating that a stroke happens every 40 seconds in the U.S. That's mm. quite, quite fast. So it's, it's just rapidly um, um, growing in numbers. And we need to first talk about what stroke is and then talk about rehabbing from stroke. So a stroke is a cerebral vascular accident or a CVA, and it's where we have partial or full blockage of blood flow to the brain. So when we have inflammation, hey, ding, there we go. Was that 10? That's Number 10, 10 now. Yeah, you got a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of catching up to do in this last 20 minutes of the podcast. I do. When uh, when we have inflammation, it will result in a damage in our blood vessels and the reparative process will initiate, which results in a buildup of cholesterol. We know we talked about that word on the show plenty. Mm -hmm. Cholesterol is there actually to help repair and heal. It's not there to damage. So when we see cholesterol at the site and formation of blood clots, the reason being is because it's it's repairing the walls of our uh, of our endothelial um, uh, vessels. So when the inflammation is too much, also the vessel can rupture or the formation of the blood clot can break off of the endothelial wall. And then that clot will make its way either towards the heart, which will cause a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, or it can move towards the brain and result in a stroke. So when blood and oxygen are unable to reach the brain, when nutrients are unable to reach the brain, it will result in damage in the area of the brain that's not receiving the nutrients. So these can either, um, they can experience significant damage or the neurons can actually completely die off and that will leave the individual with, well, what we used to think was permanent damage, but I'll speak to why that's not as much the case anymore, which is great. There are different types of strokes. We have ischemic stroke, which is kind of your more common stroke, which is a obstruction of blood flow due to a clot. Um, we have brain hemorrhaging, which is when the vessel itself actually ruptures. And then we have TIAs, which are transient ischemic attacks or mini strokes. Um, that's caused by temporary obstruction. A lot of people have those and don't even know they had them until they get an MRI. And they're like, did you know you had mini strokes, a bunch of them? And they actually never knew it. Right. Most um, people probably it, never know it. Yes, they don't. You're right. Um, so depending on where the blood flow is obstructed, this is going to dictate where the damage is um, to certain structures of the brain and where that damage will occur. 
We know also, too, that the severity of damage is almost always typically associated with the time of obstruction, which is why early detection is absolutely necessary. So for the most part, we know that it occurs on the left side of the brain. You'll experience paralysis on the right side of the body. We call that hemiplegia or hemiparesis, which is uh, more like a loss of sensation. There's language-related issues and then psychomotor retardation, which is characterized by slow movement and behavior and also memory loss. And then right hemispheric strokes will result in paralysis on the left side of the body. Visual problems, psychomotor activations or changes in quick or rash behaviors. We see a lot of personality changes with right side strokes and then also memory loss. So now we kind of know what stroke is. Um, if you're rehabbing from a stroke, what can you do and how can ketogenic diets help? Right. We'll talk about inflammation. As anyone in the field of functional medicine will tell you, yes, we want to assist in the rehabilitative process after a stroke has occurred, but we also want to do our best to prevent another stroke from happening. We know that those with, who've had a stroke before are much more likely um, to have a stroke in the future. So this is where lifestyle and behavioral modification is absolutely a necessity. We want to reduce inflammation in the body, so we need to start removing the root cause, which can be sugar processed carbohydrates, and plenty of other areas um, that, that I'm going to leave for a later time to mention. But this is a good step one for, for prevention, but also for rehabilitation. But we, what we also know is that ketones um, are very neuroprotective. And what I mean by that is that ketones themselves can provide neuronal protection through many different mechanisms. So remember, like I mentioned earlier, we used to think that stroke damage was lifelong. It was permanent. But newer research actually says this is not the case. And it's because we found out that our body has its own innate power to heal. We just have to tell it how to express itself. So what I'm talking about here is genetic expression. We already talked about this field of, of lifestyle and, and diet change for um, helping to express genes or epigenetics. And there's a process in our physiology called neurogenesis. And neurogenesis via another uh, process called neuroregeneration is when we're able to create new neurons and new neuronal connections. So in other words, we're able to rewire the brain and help repair it, uh, repair damaged neuronal connections. So I think that that is probably the, the largest benefit, but there's also, and I can speak to it if, if we got time, the, the benefits of what autophagy can do. Yes, please. Stroke. Yes. Yeah. So what we know is another benefit to a kinetic lifestyle is through the means of autophagy. So and most of your listeners probably are going to know what this is, but ba at its basis um, and at its core, autophagy is the process of cleaning up that old lingering junk. So if our detoxification system is not working correctly, then what we do is we allow free radicals or dead cells, unneeded dead cells to linger around and they can wreak havoc on our nervous system, on our brain and on our spinal cord. And in turn, this will increase overall symptoms of impairment and degradation that's in the brain. So this is where fasting can really be a major factor in rehabbing from stroke or any type of neuronal damage. And it's because we're able to tap into the effects of autophagy and remove all those dead, unneeded brain cells and all those oxidized free radicals. And, and so I'm a huge proponent of anyone who's rehabbing from stroke um, to do maybe a protein fast or to do fasting um, so that they can can um, kickstart this this uh, autophagy. So you're talking about a protein sparing modified fast that was talking about? Yeah, yeah. Protein sparing. So for for some patients, we'll have them um, go to like 15 to 25 grams of protein like once or twice a week. Um, yep. So that kickstart the auto uh, um, the autophagy effects. So, yeah, protein 
protein cycling is a great way to do it. And then also you can do things like HIIT training. So high intensity interval training has been shown to increase autophagy um, because basically what you're doing is you're putting your body um, in a stressful state uh, and stressful states help to clean our body and system out. Um, We don't want sustained stressful states, but good, hard, fast, stressful states are really good for us. Or medic state. Exactly. See, I can pull out those, those hundred million dollar words sometimes when I need them. So, (laughs) yes. All right. Well, Chiara, you got a mouthful as well. So that's good. We're, we're, we're thoroughly answering. See, uh, Will's going to come back and what? You didn't answer long enough. Uh, well, they, they need more, Will. <laughs> Chase set the bar very high. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's get to the. To I'm sorry. What's that? I just tend to be a talker. That's all right, man. That That's good for a <laughs> podcaster, man. If you ever do your own podcast someday, it's going to come in handy for you to be a good talker. So. Oh, I like the sound of that. Well, let's get the, to the third featured question of the day. It's another Sean asked this question. Hey, Jimmy and Dr. Wiles, thank you for playing such a strong part in my journey to better health. In January of 2014, I weighed in at 285 pounds. I lost 50 pounds with juicing after slowly gaining back all the weight after getting frustrated with doing that. I then got diagnosed as pre-diabetic in June of 2016, and it terrified me since my older brother has type 2 diabetes. Fortunately, I found the work of Tim Ferriss, which led me to cyclical ketogenic and then full-time keto, which I've now lost over 100 pounds. So far, so good, right? I recently went to the doctor and got some bad news about my prolactin levels, indicative of the health of my pituitary gland. The normal range is 2.1 to 17.7, but mine came in at 63.9. Is this increase in prolactin a result of eating keto or is it something completely unrelated to my diet my doctor's going to run an mri to see if he can find out more about it so is this normal for ketosis thank you in advance sean sean wants to know and i've never i don't think we've ever addressed prolactin on this show before is my elevated prolactin levels a result of my low carb high fat ketogenic diet Really good question. I'm glad I'm able to provide somewhat of an answer, hopefully something that that's informative here on prolactin. And I think like the other questions, we need to just take a few moments to discuss areas that that many may not be familiar with. Yeah. So first, prolactin, what is it? Um, It's primarily functioning as a hormone and protein that stimulates mammillary glands uh, to produce milk. So we find this in both males and females, but when we speak of prolactin, we're predominantly speaking in terms of breastfeeding mothers. Right. So um, because it's a signal um, that's provided from the pituitary gland before and after childbirth. So this hormone is typically continued to be released in mass quantities while the mother is continuing to breastfeed. But remember, this is not just something that occurs in females. It also occurs in males. So just generally not in as massive of quantities as with females. So, you know, Sean, I like it. It's an ambiguous uh, name. So I'm going to speak kind of. It's probably a male. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say S.E.A.N. is a male. Right. Gotcha. Okay. cool. One of the things you know, I would be curious um, about for Sean um, is what uh, his or her prolactin levels were before going on keto, because if so, we could partially answer this question there um, and say, that, know. 
Yeah, probably not. I don't have any idea what my prolactin level is. Me, me either. I don't think I've ever been tested for for prolactin. So it's interesting to, uh, you know, we if we had a little bit more background on why they're testing for prolactin, you know, might have been just a battery of tests that he had run at his doc. You know, doctors can run just random tests. Right. Yes, indeed. Because if we had that information, then we might be able to better differentiate whether or not keto does cause it or, or right. doesn't for this individual. But we, but since we don't have that information, we right. can kind of discuss what it might be related to. So uh, we just know her blood work demonstrates what's called hyperprolactinemia. Uh, basically, that's just having way too much prolactin. And so a lot of the times this is typically treated by a medication called cabergoline. Cabergoline helps to reduce prolactin secretion. But again, I like to speak to root causes. I don't want right. to speak about cu- covering up symptoms. Functional so I'm not medicine harp- approach, yeah. Exactly. So I'm not going to harp on that. So if we want to talk about root cause, let's talk about uh, where it starts, which is in the pituitary gland. And I already talked a little bit about the pituitary gland. But I talked more about the adrenal glands earlier. But the pituitary gland is a small gland that's found sitting right below our hypothalamus within our brain. And we know that the pituitary is responsible for regulating many hormones, like stress hormones, reproduction hormones, and then, of course, lactation. So this gland is stimulated by our hypothalamus, which is like a subcortical structure of our brain, which means it sits below our brain and is responsible for our stress response. It's also responsible for regulating body temperature and also, too, the hunger response. So it serves as like that link between our nervous system and then our endocrine system. So what this looks like is that when our hypothalamus is stimulated in our brain, um, it initiates certain hormonal responses. And this is how the brain and the rest of our body are connected from our hormonal standpoint. So when we find that we're stressed and our body's stressed, this can initiate the release of prolactin production and circulation. There are other dysfunctions, though, within the body that can result in prolactin increase. And this could be due to things like hypothyroidism or even kidney disease. Uh, but these are ruled out you know, through further testing and imaging and not necessarily something that, that we would do on, on this show. Uh, but this is because they're looking for something also, too, called prolactinoma, which is a benign tu- uh, tumor that's found within the pituitary. And this is likely why they're sending Sean for an MRI, um, is to rule out, rule out this uh, prolactinoma. Uh, to make sure that there is no tumor. So that'd be my guess there. Um, but honestly, what I think is in regards to keto and a ketogenic lifestyle is that some of these issues should improve with a ketogenic lifestyle. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure that increased prolactin is due to being in ketosis, um, like, like she posed. My guess is that increased prolactin is, is yeah, not necessarily linked with the diet. It could be certain foods, though, that are causing an allergic response. And increased stimulation in the hypothalamus and then subsequently the pituitary gland. So I, I think that's quite possible. This is where some really hardcore blood work is going to come in handy to yeah. look at di- different l- allergic responses and cortisol increases within the bloodstream after eating certain quote unquote keto foods. We want to make sure we're not just given random foods to test for allergy, but those that you'll be eating on keto since we want to to uh, look at that aspect. Um, and, and I think that testing prolactin with uh, food allergy tests can also be really important. So again, another one that I provided a mouthful, but that's where I would take this one. <laughs> well, Sean, thank you for your question. Definitely the first time we've ever addressed that. And I, I appreciate your response, Jay. We're up to the Keto Talk mailbox portion of the show. This one's from Jody. Hi, Jimmy and Jay. After doing keto for a little while now, I've just experienced vertigo for the first time. Is this a common side effect of keto? Does it mean I'm going are getting too much or too little of something in my diet that would cause this. I appreciate your help in understanding this. 
Jody. So Jody wants to know, is developing vertigo a common problem with switching over to a ketogenic diet? And what is added or subtracted from the diet that could possibly cause this? I've never had vertigo and I've been eating a low carb diet since 2004 and uh, a ketogenic diet since 2012. So uh, I, I don't think it's that common, but do you see it a lot? Mm -hmm. Great question, Jody. And, and from you too, Jimmy, one of the things I'll say is that I have not experienced vertigo either. So I cannot speak it from a personal standpoint, but I, what I will speak from is a clinical standpoint. Vertigo is no fun. And if you've experienced vertigo, you know what I'm talking about, because unlike feeling dizzy where you feel like your head is spinning, vertigo is when you feel like the entire room is spinning. And we typically do not freaky. see <laughs> it would be very freaky. Yes, it causes people to fall over. Wow. Um, and I, it's actually led to concussions for some people because mm. they fallen over and can't catch themselves. Um, so we, you know, we don't typically see vertigo though, as a primary symptom. We actually, and what that means is that vertigo is typically seen as a secondary uh, symptom or an underlying symptom of another medical concern. Um, it, not always, but most of the time, almost predominantly over 90% of the reason we see vertigo is from inner ear related issues. Mm. Um, so we know that the inner uh, ear and our vestibular sacs, which are the uh, fluid filled sacs in our ears are responsible for balance. And so when there's dysfunction there, then there's, there can be dysfunction uh, in, in vertigo. There's also different areas of the brain that are responsible for coordination and balance. So in our central nervous system, one of them is called the cerebellum. The cerebellum, if there's dysfunction, if there's any type of tumor, and I'm not saying this for Jody at all, I'm just saying kind of this is where we see vertigo a lot of times within, within our brain, then this can cause um, um, vertigo. But to answer the question of whether or not ketogenic, uh, if I've seen kind of this as a common problem, the answer would be no, no. Keto Why would is certainly it? Exactly. It, it, it wouldn't. Keto is not a common, I mean, sorry, vertigo is not a common side effect of keto. I, I would say that some people experience like increased dizziness during the adaptation period, but that's just because you're detoxing um, from all the effects of all the sugar you've had in your and body. Salt and salt deficiency. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and so there are some data, like you just said, to support that decreased electrolyte consumption can lead to increased dizziness. Um, but vertigo is very different than dizziness. Um, it's, it's typically, again, something that's more of an underlying uh, concern from a medical standpoint, which is why I would definitely tell them to go get it checked out um, from an ENT, which is ear, nose, throat doctor. So you need that's a specialty doctor. So you would need like a referral there. But you want to make sure that there isn't anything going on within the ear um, that could be uh, the result or causing the vertigo, but I cannot see, and I have not found any links to say that in a, how living a ketogenic lifestyle is directly linked with um, causing vertigo. It is amazing to me, all the questions we get on this show and people like XYZ symptom or XYZ disease happened. Did keto cause that? And yet you never kind of hear out in the mainstream, wow, I've been eating a low fat diet all these years. Did, did that cause that? I've been eating a sad diet all these years. Well, with, with like type 2 diabetes probably did cause it. But, you know, right. nobody ever asks about those kind of things. But, oh, don't bring up the four letter key, uh, K word because that had to have caused it. It's just it's kind of a fascinating psychological discussion of why we believe those kind of things. Yes, it's it, it's so true. I think that I find that a lot of the ketogenic community tends to be more health conscious. 
And so with, and when anything happens, uh, when they have anything kind of uh, odd happen in their health, yeah. and a lot of times we look for answers and we're looking for a culprit. And I'm not saying that necessarily Jody is doing this, but I know that I do it sometimes. I has kind of like a little bit tweak or I feel something weird in my body. Yeah. I'm like, oh, is it something that I did, which would be either <laughs> diet or any of the crazy biohacks that I do. Um, so, I, I mean, it's certainly understandable. But yeah, we don't want to just throw keto under the bus and say it's to blame for everything, because as we know, it's not. And and don't get a, a case of orthorexia either, which is a whole nother topic we could probably spend a whole hour, hour and a half podcast on. <laughs> oh, you absolutely could. <laughs> well, Jody, thank you for that question. And we don't have any iTunes reviews for you today, but if you'd like to leave us one, go over to Apple Podcasts, type in Keto Talk, Jimmy Moore, Will Cole. You will find the show and you can leave us your review. Well, guys, that's it for episode 141 of Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole with special guest co-hosts we had here today, Dr. Jay Wiles. Go check him out, drjwiles.com. That's D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S.com. Jay, you're a rock star, man. We got you through Keto Talk. Good job today. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it. This is, is so much fun. I, you know, I love helping others with kind of their questions. But hey, you give me an, an hour, hour and a half to talk about keto and I'm down. <laughs> well, we're going to give you another opportunity tomorrow. Guys, tune in to my Friday podcast, the Keto Hacking MD podcast, because you're going to hear a familiar voice besides mine and John Lemansky. Uh, Dr. Wiles will be on that show as well, helping us talk about some of the neurofeedback of entraining your brain so that you can be in a more relaxed, calm state to get rid of the stress in your life. So uh, ketohackingmd.com on Friday. So real excited to overexpose my audience this week to Dr. Jay Wiles. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. They're going to get real sick of me. But I'm OK with that. <laughs> They're already sick of me, man. What are you talking about? So <laughs> So, guys, until next Thursday, we'll see you then. You've been listening to Keto Talk with Jimmy Moore and Dr. Will Cole. Visit our website, ketotalk.com, for full show notes for this episode. If you love Keto Talk, then drop us a review at iTunes. Thanks for joining us for today's episode, and we'll see you again next Thursday. Disc of Light. <laughs>